0: This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language, as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content.
1: I'm going to give you ten minutes to get your hands off my dick. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more
2: often than I'd like.
1: McManus, you're fucking on my floor, McManus! My dick, you don't have to mop it. You
2: lose an eye, you get kicked in the balls, get you a know, face full of shit, and become a different man. This
3: is a prison, not a democracy. Don't you fuck with me, my brother. Please, sir, may
2: I fuck my wife? Don't you walk away, you cocksucker. Come on,
3: Dad. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. How do you keep that hat on your head? No not quote. Right now, we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance.
0: Hello everybody, and welcome to the finale of Series 1 of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson, and before we get the ball rolling on this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has listened to the show over the course of the first series. It absolutely blows my mind that anybody took the time to listen to the show. When I started this, I was a ball of nerves wondering to myself, is anybody going to like it? Is anybody going to listen? Am I just wasting my time, etc.? But it means so much to me that you are here and you have taken the time to listen to little old me sat at his dining room table waffle on about a TV show. Once again, thank you, each and every one of you. Also, just before we get started, I just wanted to share this with you too. I was on holiday recently with my wife. We had four days in Barcelona at the end of September. And on the last day, I checked my Instagram feed and saw that Dean Winters, who, as we all know by now, played Ryan O'Reilly, was also in Barcelona at the exact same time. Unfortunately, it was too late in my state to organise any sort of meetup with Mr Winters, assuming that he would want to anyway, but it just struck me as such a strange coincidence how, of all the places in the world, I and someone from the show that I podcast about just happen to end up being in the same place at the same time. Dean, if you're listening, I'd, I'd love to have a chat with you someday. Having got that out of the way, let's move on to the business at hand, which is, of course, the season finale. Episode 8, A Game of Checkers. Originally airing on August 25th, 1997 and holding an 8.9 on IMDb, the highest rating for an episode this series, it was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Jean Desagonzac, returning to direct his second episode of the show. On this day in 1997, prisoner number 97K123, Egon Krenz, the former leader of East Germany, was sentenced to six and a half years in prison for instigating a 1989 shoot-to-kill policy against people attempting to escape over the Berlin Wall. In the music charts, I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy, Faith Evans and 112 still held the number one spot on the Billboard chart in the US, meaning that the song held the number one spot for the entire run of the first series of Oz. While in the UK, Will Smith sat atop the charts for a second week with Men in Black, the hit single from the film of the same name that Smith also starred in. So take your places and let the game begin.
1: Remember when your high school history teacher said that the course of human events changes because of the deeds of great men? Well, the bitch was lying. Fuck Caesar, fuck Lincoln, fuck Mahatma Gandhi. The world keeps moving because of you and me, the anonymous. Revolutions get gone because there ain't enough bread. Wars happen over a game of chickens. Hey, good night, turd. <laughs>
0: So as is customary, Augustus starts off with his narration, in which he is detailing about how changes don't occur from the actions of great men, but rather from revolutions and how wars can happen over a game of checkers. I couldn't find any evidence of an actual war starting over something as trivial as a game of checkers, so I'm assuming this is more symbolic than anything else. We also see Schillinger being escorted to his new cell in Genpop and see that he's also acquired a new nickname as a guard takes great delight in saying goodnight turd to him. We then get Schillinger's flashback in which he attacks a black man who is selling drugs to Schillinger's two sons, Andrew and Hank. He punches the man to the ground before beating him with a crowbar, striking him a total of five times, before he and the boys get into their car and drive away, but not before Schillinger throws the drugs out of the window. So Schillinger was convicted back in October 92 for aggravated assault in the first degree basically meaning that he set up this meeting to happen so that he could put a beating on the black drug dealer, and sentenced to eight years, up for parole in five. What is interesting about the date of Schillinger's conviction is that it would have been less than six months after the LA riots, which occurred over six days from April 29th to May 4th, following the emergence of a secretly recorded 12-minute video of five white police officers from the LAPD beating on Rodney King, a 25-year-old black man, following a high-speed chase that occurred after an attempted traffic stop in March 1991. I won't go into any more details about the LA riots today, as that is an entire podcast series in and of itself, but I will link to some articles detailing them, and I also recommend the Netflix movie titled Rodney King. It's based on the 2014 play written by and starring Oz alumni Roger Gwenver Smith, who we said goodbye to last episode. Also on Netflix, there is a movie called LA92, which works as a companion piece quite well. But in the terms of Schillinger and his crime, it would have occurred at a time when racial tensions would have been at an all-time high in the US. Sadly, those tensions still exist as we've seen over the last few years, particularly in the case of the shootings of Trayvon Martin in 2012 and Darren Wilson in 2014 and the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't want to turn this into a political tirade, but it seems that even 27 years since the LA riots, and of course going even further back than that, racial tension in the US is something that sadly just doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. So Vernon Schillinger is played by J.K. Simmons. Born January 9, 1955 in Gross Pointe, Michigan, Simmons' family moved to Worthington, Ohio when he was ten years old. The son of an administrator and a music teacher, Simmons attended Thomas Worthington High School from 1970 to 1972, where he was a member of the choir as well as participating in drama and playing on the school football team. In 1973, when Simmons was 18, the family moved again to Missoula, Montana, where his father became the director of the School of Music at the University of Montana. Simmons himself would graduate from the same university in 1978 with a music degree, and was also a member of the music-oriented FIMU Alpha Sinfonia Fraternity. Simmons would later move to Seattle, Washington, where he became a member of the Seattle Repertory Theatre, a company which has also featured Christopher Walken, Lawrence Fishburne, and Samuel L. Jackson amongst its ranks over the years. After making his TV debut as Patrolman in the Park in the 1986 TV movie Popeye Doyle, Simmons would return to theatre, appearing in a revival of Carousel with the Houston Grand Opera, as well as on off-Broadway productions in the late 1980s. He would make his full Broadway debut playing the part of Benny Southstreet in the 1992 revival of Guys and Dolls, which starred Nathan Lane and Peter Gallagher. During this time, Simmons also undertook commercial voiceover work, including portraying the voice of the yellow Eminem as well as taking small TV roles, appearing in New York News, Swift Justice, and as with so many others on ours, Homicide Life on the Street. The role of Schillinger was Simmons' first major role on TV, and he has gone on to have an amazing career afterwards, but I will cover that in detail in a future episode of the show. I have got something in the pipeline to look at, arguably Simmons' biggest achievement to date, but I'm not going to reveal what that is at the moment, you'll have to wait and see. But I'm very excited to talk about that when we get to it. But for now, we see showing it in Ray's office where he is talking to Ray and Sir McManus.
2: I had a visit from my sons. They're almost out of their teens now, almost men. They live with their grandfather, the man who taught me everything I know about hate. Yesterday my boys sat there across from me ranting and raging. They were both fucked up on drugs. They know I hate drugs. But I'm in here because I hate drugs and because I love them. I yelled at them and uh, they just laughed. They laughed at me. It's funny, you know, with one eye, I could see, finally, that they are becoming the men I made them. In about three months, tell I'm up for parole. All I want is to get out of here, be there for them, try to help my kids.
3: That's all. I let you back in Damn city, you'll kill Beecher. I wanted him dead, he'd already be dead. You say you've changed, why should I believe you?
2: Trust me, McManus, you lose an eye, get kicked in the balls, get a face full of shit, you become a different man.
0: Once again, J.K. Simmons absolutely knocking it out of the park with his delivery there. A couple of little things that I picked up on. Schillinger sees an elastic band on the desk and he picks it up and starts playing with it. Almost like he's trying to control his nerves, it's a side we haven't seen from Schillinger before. He's had so much control over people up until this point. Also on Ray's desk, he has a placard that reads, Real Men Keep Their Promises. We'll see if that's the case as we go on. Schillinger returns to M-City, where he's greeted by Scott, who is sat with two men who are playing checkers. Schillinger asks where Beecher is, but Scott tells him that he's still in the hall. With that, we then cut to the hall where McManus has gone to let Beecher out and give him some clothes. Beecher asks McManus if he wants to touch his dick, but McManus no-sells it and just tells him to get dressed. Beecher says that he shits all over a man and that that isn't normal, which McManus agrees with before continuing to tell him to get dressed. He tells Beecher about Schillinger returning to M-City and that he has promised that he won't harm Beecher, and McManus wants Beecher to promise the same. Beecher recounts what Schillinger has done to him in Oz, including burning a swash sticker on him, making him eat pages from a book, making him wear women's makeup, and that Schillinger fucked him up the arse. So this is the first proper mention that Schillinger has in fact raped Beecher. I know some have speculated about it in earlier episodes, but this is the first proper mention of it here. Beecher questions as to why he should now forgive Schellinger and asks McManus if he could do the same if he was in the situation. McManus says that he would, which I find very hard to believe. Beecher says, alright then, I, f- I forgive him, before he leaves to return to M-City. Once there, he moves into his new cell, which he is now sharing with Ryan. He asks Beecher how crazy he really is, and Beecher seems taken aback by being called crazy as Ryan recounts what Beecher has done to Schellinger, mentioning about breaking the glass into his eye and taking a shit on his face. The Brotherhood have been standing at the pot glass the whole time while they've been talking, and Beecher goes over and bangs on it, asking what they're looking at. The Brotherhood give him a smirk as they leave, almost like they know that they're getting under Beecher's skin, as Beecher gives him the finger. Ryan says that the old Beecher would have hid just now, but Beecher tells him that he left the old Beecher in the hole. Ryan pats him on the back, but Beecher firmly tells him not to get close, so Beecher seems to have realised that he's made that mistake of trusting someone once already, and he isn't going to make it again. He obviously has somewhat of a connection with Ryan due to them doing drugs together on quite a regular basis, but he's certainly keeping him at arm's length for now. Ryan tells him that the Muslims are going to riot any day and that he is going to need Beecher on his side no matter what his mental state is. Beecher sees Schillinger and Scott go by and heads out of the pod yelling, it's your move, asswipe, before Diane tells him to knock it off or he's heading back to the hall in record time. Schillinger and Scott pass Adabizi, who calls him asswipe too. So Schillinger has gone and got himself two nicknames already this episode, and we're not even ten minutes in. Scott tells him that he's going to have to take Beecher out, otherwise he isn't going to have any power left in M-City, and everyone will think that he's a pansy ass. Schillinger says that he doesn't care and to let them think whatever they want, so he seems to be solely focused on getting through the next three months to get to his parole hearing, and hopefully get out and save his boys. Augustus narrates about the inmates having to develop a game face, which he says they have on at all times. As we see Scott laying down on his bed only to find some cigarettes under his pillow. And we get the flashback to when he struck the deal with Diane a couple of episodes ago about smuggling. He sees Diane walk by and gives her a wink. It looked like they'd dropped this part of the story as it hadn't been mentioned or alluded to in any way since it was first introduced. It seems very bizarre that they've just suddenly resurrected it out of seemingly out of nowhere. We see McManus talking to Diane, but don't hear what's being said before we cut to him leading Diane into his office. McManus has his trademark moody face on as he tells her that he's heard a rumour going round that she's bringing contraband into Oz, and asks her whether it's bullshit or not. She asks who he heard it from, but McManus again asks her to tell him that it's not true. Diane tells him that it's not true, but he says that she's lying, and says that he has an eyewitness that saw her pass cigarettes to Scott. Diane asks who the witness is, and McManus tells her that it was him that saw it. Diane doesn't try to fight it, as obviously she's been caught red-handed and figures that she's fired. However, McManus tells her that she isn't fired and tells her that he knows that she's worried about money due to the discontinued overtime, and he tells her that it has to stop. Diane says that she will put an end to it, but McManus telling her it has to be today, and she thanks him for the second chance. McManus then mentions that he's been going through her file and that he knows about her ex-husband and Scott riding together in the bike gang, and says that she should have told him but he then asks if she has slept with Scott, and he just wants to know if she's fucked them both or not. Diane, understandably, gets upset and questions why he's doing this, before she then says that she doesn't need this and says that she quits. But McManus quickly realises his mistake and says that he's sorry and that he doesn't know what's going on with him, and asks for forgiveness. She forgives him, quite reluctantly, and he asks her to stay. Diane tells him that she has no place else to go and leaves, and nearly hits him in the face on the way out with the door, she heads down to the drug pod where Scott is finishing up selling some cigarettes and she tells him that the deal is off and she's out of the cigarette business. She tells him that she can't take the stress and she can't risk getting caught. Scott tells her that he has customers that rely on him and that if she quits then he'll go to Leo and tell him everything, saying the most that he'll get is a trip to the Hull, while Diane is looking at losing her job and maybe doing time herself and that her daughter will be left motherless. He finishes by telling Diane that they're joined at the hip and that there's nothing she can do about it. He leaves the pod and passes McManus, telling him that Diane is a damn fine woman. Next up, we see the arrival of another new officer, Anthony Nowakowski, or as Hunt refers to him, some Pollock. This is also the first time we see Officer Armstrong, who looks like some 1980s pro wrestler. Anthony is played by Matt Ross. This is his only appearance on Oz, and only had a small number of roles in film prior to this, including 12 Monkeys and Face Off in 1995 and 1997, as well as appearing in Party of Five on TV. I know him mostly for playing the role of Lewis Carruthers in American Psycho, which is one of my absolute favourite films, and I might just go watch it after I finish recording this. So Anthony makes his way into M-City, as we see Scott and Ryan in the laundry room. Scott says that if the Muslims riot, then they're ready, and he lists off a number of the other gangs that are also ready. He asks Ryan where the homeboys stand, with Ryan saying that Adebisi and the rest are on their side, but he doesn't think that they should fight the Muslims if they can avoid it. Scott questions if Ryan is going soft, but Ryan says that he just wants to stay alive. Anthony is watching them from the window, but soon moves over to Kenny and asks what he's doing. Kenny tells him that he isn't doing anything, with Anthony saying, ''Yeah? Well, why don't you go do it somewhere else?'' almost like he's trying to intimidate Kenny, but he must be kidding himself. I'm not even intimidated by this guy, so there was no way that Kenny would be. Kenny heads under the stairs, and we see that he's in fact acting as a lookout while Adabizzi hits up on some drugs. Anthony heads up to the control desk, and we find out that it's his first day and that he's late for it, saying that he got lost on the way to the prison. Diane introduces herself, as well as her colleague, Officer Joe Menia, who is played by Philip Scosarella. We've seen him on and off throughout the series, usually declaring the count at the end of the day, and Oz was one of just two acting credits that he holds, the other being a part in Tom Fontana's firehouse playing a firefighter, which he did for a living at the time in the South Bronx. Menio can't believe that they've been given another newbie, and Diane says that Menio has been there for two centuries, so he's very much part of the scenery at Oz. There's mention about recent officer suspensions for beating up inmates, which Menio tries to justify saying that the inmates killed one of their guys. So not only amongst the inmates do you get a feeling of tribal warfare, it seems to seep into the staff as well. Diane says that as a result of those recent beatings, things have been tense, but she's hoping that they're past that now. Anthony also asks about the celebrities they have in M-City. Diane points out Saeed as we go into the Muslims pod, where Saeed is telling them it's time, and how they are going to incite the riot by having one of the groups start an argument with a guard. She points out Dobbins, who now seems completely lost without his cello and just sits in front of the TV all day, before finally pointing out Jackson Vahue, and Anthony seems surprised to see him and asks if she saw that game against the Bulls. I'm beginning to think that game was the only good match that Vahue ever played in, as it's the only one they ever seem to mention. We then cut to Rebido getting a visit in his pod from McManus. He asks Rebido why he hasn't been to work lately, but Rebido just says that God lied to him. Mamanis then says that he's late for a meeting after being there for all of ten seconds and leaves. Ribodeau then says that he used to have meetings before we get a look at his flashback, in which we see young Ribodeau at a cafe going over some blueprints with someone who crumples them up and throws them at Ribodeau, who then stabs the man in the neck. Presumably this was some big job that Ribodeau was hoping to land, but things went awry. It's scored with an a cappella version of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. Again, I couldn't find out who was performing this. I would imagine it was the same group that did the rendition of Jailhouse Rock back in episode 4. That is a great song, though. It was originally written for Nina Simone by Benny Benjamin, Gloria Caldwell and Sol Marcus, but it's been covered by a number of artists over the years. My favourite version of it is probably the one by Santa Esmeralda from the late 70s. Bob Rebodeau is played by George Morphogen. Born March 30th 1933 in New York City and of Greek heritage, George got his start in theatre appearing in plays such as A Man of All Seasons and Inspector Calls and Kingdoms on Broadway, before moving into film and TV in the early 70s. Although his portrayal of Rebodeau is one of his most famous roles, his other notable role came in the TV miniseries The, as well as its follow-up The Final Battle, where he played the part of Stanley Bernstein. These days, George teaches classes at the HB Studio in New York, an acting school whose alumni include Robert De Niro, Jeff Bridges, Al Pacino, Sigourney Weaver, Sarah Jessica Parker and Gene Wilder, to name but a few. So Rebido was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death, but of course we've already seen that his execution was botched because of the 65 blackout, so his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. He's beginning to think that he never actually talked to God and that it's all been in his head. McManus leaves through M-City to get to his meeting as Diane tries to introduce Anthony, but he has to rush off, but as he does, he sees Father Ray on his way out. Father Ray is on his way to speak with Miguel. We cut into the Latino's pod and hear Miguel saying, we get the hostages, so it's clear that they're in on the plan too. Ray enters and asks to speak to Miguel privately, but he tells Ray that whatever he has to say, he can say in front of everybody. Ray isn't playing that game though and tells the others to take a hike, which they eventually do. Ray says that Jose Torres has been paroled and that he has heard that as a result of that, Miguel is running the gang now. So I'm assuming that Jose was some high-ranking Latino in Oz, but we don't see him at any point as far as I know. Miguel tells Ray that the only reason he didn't beat him up in front of the other Latinos is because of Ray being there for him, but he warns him not to push his luck. We go outside to M-City, where two men are playing checkers, and then it happens.
3: Okay. I'm losing You, uh, you move this piece? No. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. You fucking move the pieces. You've been doing it all along. Every time I have to take a shit, you move the pieces. That's why I'm fucking losing. I keep losing because you suck. You motherfucking... <laughs>
0: What we get here is different to what was written in original drafts of the script. Sister Pete, who isn't featured in this episode, in fact it's the only episode of the show that she doesn't appear in, was originally meant to be directing an amateur dramatics presentation of West Side Story starring some of the inmates. The riot would have occurred after the inmates started to fight each other, firstly whilst in character for the show before escalating into a full-scale riot. The use of West Side Story was also a nod to Rita Moreno, who starred in the 1961 movie adaptation of the show, in which she won an Academy Award, a Golden Globe, and a Laurel Award for her role as Anita. So the two checkers players start to fight over their game, and everybody else piles in as Diane tells them to knock it off. Anthony and Menia run down to try and break it up, but they're completely outnumbered and the inmates start to attack them. So Anthony's been there for just a few minutes and this has happened to him, it's very much a baptism of fire. Saeed watches on as another officer tries to intervene, but he is tripped on his way down the stairs as Diane calls for backup from Hunt and Armstrong, who is hell-bent on finishing his sandwich before getting involved. Ryan and Scott come out of the laundry room and see that things are starting to kick off. Ryan clocks Armstrong in the face with his metal washing basket, as we see Diane getting cornered by inmates at the control desk. Scott and Ryan attack Hunt at the security office at the gate as Schillinger looks on nervously before backing away. Ryan puts a hell of a beating on Hunt, hitting him with the metal legs of a chair three times. Beecher joins the as he starts to push anybody and everybody, and the inmates then start to fight amongst themselves. Ribedo hides in the corner of his pod, grabbing the mattress from his bed and hiding behind it in what is a very smart move on his part. Miguel and Ray leave their pod, but Ray is quickly grabbed by inmates and dragged to the floor as he appeals to Miguel for help, but Miguel doesn't and instead leaves with another member of his gang. Saeed rallies his troops and tells them that they know what to do before they run out of the pod and start to attack other inmates. One unarmed inmate climbs over the railing at the control desk and is then pushed off to the floor below by one of the Muslims. It was a very stupid thing to do, in all fairness. Saeed looks on approvingly before heading back into his pod to retrieve something from under his bed. The homeboys break into McManus's office and trash the place. Vahew spins Augustus around in his chair, and we see Dobbins get stabbed in the chest a number of times by an inmate. Adabeezy spins around in McManus's chair, blowing a party blower – no idea where he got that from – and looks down at Ryan at gate control. Adabeezy turns back and gives a great look of, oh shit, as the other homeboys throw McManus's desk through the window down to the floor below. Adewale's facial expressions as Adabeezy are fantastic. Leo and McManus run through a corridor, Leo saying that their worst nightmare is happening, as we see Beecher walking through the crowd letting off a fire extinguisher. He's having the time of his life during all of this, as another inmate smashes one of the TV screens with a chair, others throw mattresses and game desks over the railings from the first floor as Schillinger slowly makes his way to the safety of his pod. The main gate is blocked using vending machines, washers from the laundry room, and whatever else they can find. They've somehow got a couch on top of the pile, and they've also piled a bunch of mattresses and desks in the centre of M-City. Miguel sets fire to the pile as Saeed makes his way down to the control desk, pulls out the gun that Officer Wood left for him and fires into the air. Silence falls over M-City before Saeed delivers the line of the series, and the inmates cheer to close out Act 1. So into Act 2, and Leo approaches with a megaphone. He says that if the inmates surrender immediately, there will be no repercussions, but the inmates just throw whatever they can through the gate and tell him to fuck off. Leo asks who's in charge, before he calls out Saeed to speak to him. Saeed approaches the gate as the inmates chant his name, so despite all the various factions within M-City, he has united them all together, and they seem to have accepted him as their leader. He places his kufi on his head, in a showing of him still being a Muslim and a man of peace, and then raises his hand to stop the chanting, which stops immediately. It's a tremendous showing of leadership and power from Saeed. He seems to have the inmates in the palm of his hand. Leo asks what this riot is about, but Saeed tells him that if he has to ask, then they have a long day ahead of them. We see the inmates lead through the hostages that they have, who are Diane, Ray, Anthony, Menia, Armstrong and Officer Dagnasty, who was the guard that got tripped on the stairs earlier and probably the guy with the best name ever. The leaders of the gangs meet in a pod to discuss what they aim to achieve out of the riot. So we've got Saeed representing the Muslims, Adebisi for the homeboys, Miguel is there for the Latinos, and Ryan and Scott representing the Brotherhood, but really they seem to be representing pretty much everybody else. Saeed says that Leo has given them a chance to draw up a list of demands, but he emphasises that they need to remain united. Miguel says that he has no issue with that, and neither does Ryan, but he wants to set some ground rules. Adebisi interrupts and tells Saeed that he isn't the boss, but Saeed says that he is willing to share the power, and that they can act as a council and make the decisions together. Scott says that there is time for that later, and wants to know how many guns Saeed has, but he only has the one. Scott says that he can't believe him, but Saeed tells him that they're going to have to learn to trust one another. Ryan says that Saeed has an advantage over the rest of them, because he currently holds the gun, and Miguel says that he can't turn his back. Saeed asks how they want him to show his sincerity, and Adebisi asks for the gun, which nobody seems to think is a good idea, and Saeed then suggests that they divide up the responsibility. As the three of them already have control of the gate, Ryan is to act as the spokesman when talking to Leo. Scott is in charge of food distribution, while Adebisi is in charge of comings and goings. Miguel suggests that his men control the hostages, which Saeed agrees to and says that Ryan and co have to give up Hunt, who they've locked up in the gate office. Scott doesn't want to, but Saeed says that it's better to have all the hostages in one place. Ryan agrees, saying that as long as they control the gate, no guards are going anywhere. They all agree on those terms before moving on to their demands, and everyone chimes in on various topics, ranging from conjugals to the smoking ban. Cut to M-City, where Beater is playing electric guitar with a broom handle. Not really much else you can say about that other than that it's awesome. Saeed looks out over the devastation that's been caused, and tells Arif that they need to get the wounded to a separate location, as we pan down to see Augustus attending to Dobbins. Vehu comes over, and he and Arif take Dobbins to the shower room. We get a flashback looking at the interactions that Augustus has had with both Vahew and Dobbins, as we once again see Vehu destroy Dobbins' cello. Vahew brings in some rags to clear up Dobbins' blood, but Augustus says that he'll need to get him to a hospital soon, otherwise he's going to die, saying that he'll be trading his cello for a harp. Vehu says, this guy and his fucking cello, which then leads to Augustus asking him if he broke Dobbins' cello. Vehu denies it, but Augustus sees right through the lie and says that Vehu has to take Dobbins to the ER. Vehu says that Dobbins isn't his problem and that he didn't start the riot, but Augustus shouts, what difference does it make? You think because of who you are you can pick and choose when to take responsibility. Well, you can't. You've got to step up says that the cello was all that Dobbins had, and compares it to his wheelchair and how basketball is everything to Vahue. After a couple of moments, Vahue picks up Dobbins and heads for the gate. He pleads with the others to open the gate so that he can get Dobbins to the hospital, but the others don't seem to want to comply. And Adebisi sticks his finger in Dobbins' wound and sniffs the blood. Very odd, but at the same time very Adabezi like behaviour. Ryan Adebisi say yes to opening the gate, but Scott asks what about Saeed and Alvarez? Ryan says that if Scott votes yes, then that's a majority, and it doesn't matter what they say, before adding that if the three of them can stick together, they can make Saeed their bitch. With that, the gate is opened and Vahieu leaves carrying Dobbins in his arms. Says that he'll see Augustus later, and Augustus gives him a very reluctant, yeah, right." as they go. Augustus has already seen that Vehu isn't the man that he thought he was when he got to us, and he hasn't been given a chance to really think any better of him now. As Vehu leaves, he's quickly pounced upon by members of the Sort as he drops Dobbins to the floor. Vehu pleads for help for Dobbins as he is cuffed, and McManus looks on from the background as the Sort also cuffed Dobbins, dragging him away as he screams in agony. We see Augustus return to Dobbins' pod where his sheet music has been thrown all over the floor. He picks up a sheet and nearly sheds a tear before noticing Dobbins' cello ball on the ground. He picks it up and then mimics playing a cello, as we then move up to Schillinger's pod where Beecher has come to pay him a visit.
3: I gotta take a shit. Peter, listen. Hey! You know, I'm standing here thinking about all the good times we've had, you and me. I don't want to fight. Oh, no. Of course not. You get into a fight, you fuck up your parole. And I hear for the next three months, you're gonna be a good little boy. So you can get out of Oz and save your two sons. Yeah, I think that's great. But you know what I'm wondering? What if Vern doesn't get out? What if as he comes up for parole he gets into a brawl? A knockdown drag out with his old roomie. Huh. What if every time he comes up for parole, Vern gets into some ugly incident and has to serve his entire sentence? And his two sons. They become monsters. <laughs> That's what I'm wondering about. Brag.
1: I got it, bang.
0: I absolutely love the role reversal between Beecher and Schillinger in this scene, and both Lee Tegas and J.K. Simmons play it a blinder in their respective roles. Beecher is now a completely different man from the one he was when he first got to Oz, and he has no fear seemingly of anybody, but certainly not Schillinger. Also, him having stood up to Schillinger in the gym and knowing that Schillinger is focused on his parole gives all the power to Beecher, again a complete 180 degree turn from where he was at the start of the series. He hasn't quite gone full Heisenberg, but he seems to be on his way. I also love the callback of Beecher singing I've Got It Bad and how he has a bit of a swagger as he sings it on his way out. Fantastic stuff from both men. Augustus narrates about how we like to root for the underdog as we close out Act 2.
1: We love to root for the underdog. You know, at halftime, when one team is getting their asses handed to them and they're headed to the locker room, we say a silent prayer. We pray that when they come back, they'll turn it around, they'll score, they'll beat those cocky sons of bitches, yeah! We love it when someone comes up from behind.
0: So Act 3 kicks off with Diane telling the other hostages that they have to figure out an escape plan and that she isn't just going to sit there waiting to get raped. They've all taken an absolute pummeling and Armstrong is still unconscious on the floor as the others contemplate about whether they're going to get killed. Miguel brings Hunt in so that all the hostages are in the one place, and tells them that he is in charge of them. He says that he doesn't know how long the riot is going to last, but that they won't be harmed if they just do what they're told and don't cause trouble. Ray tells Miguel that Armstrong needs a doctor, and to just check, Miguel comes over and gives Armstrong a couple of gentle kicks, and says that he'll see what he can do. Minio tells him that he has to go pee as Miguel leaves the pod. Diane asks if Ray was still friendly with Miguel, but Ray says that he thought he was, but he didn't lift a finger to help him when he was attacked. Miguel returns with a bucket for Menio to pee into, reminding him that this is how things are in the hole. Menio gets to his feet and asks to be uncuffed, but Miguel tells him no and asks if he remembers the joke he made when Miguel's baby died. I can't remember this happening at all, so either it happened off-screen or I've somehow blocked it from memory. We hear someone spit, but it's not shown who does it. I'm assuming Mino spits at Miguel because he then starts to beat Mino down to the floor, hitting him with his walkie-talkie. Ray manages to convince Miguel to back away, who says that he can't change things even if he wanted to. Ray counters by telling him that maybe he can't change things, but he doesn't need to give in to the brutality. Miguel calls Ray naive, but Ray says that he isn't, but that he is afraid, and Miguel tells him that he is too, before leaving once again. A news report is on one of the TVs with early reports on the riot, but Governor Devlin is denying that a riot has broken out. Miguel heads over to the control desk to see Said. His path is blocked by two of the Muslims, who only let him past on Said's command. It's another good example of the position of power that Said holds over his followers. Said asks how the hostages are doing, and Miguel tells him that they need a doctor, to which Said says that then maybe they should get them one, and that they don't want to be viewed as savages. As Miguel goes to leave, Saeed tells him that he needs to get that cleared with the others. Adebezi takes a hit of some drugs before Ryan comes over and tells him that he needs to slow down because they need to stay together and have their heads clear, and that if the situation gets worse they're going to run out of drugs and he can't be doing with Adebezi detoxing when he needs him the most. Adebezi says that Ryan worries too much and offers him some drugs, but Ryan refuses, saying that he's been clean since coming out of the hole, which I don't think is true. A scrap between Scott and Kenny breaks out in the background, but Ryan quickly gets in to break them up, telling them that this is exactly what Leo and the others are hoping for, and that Said is hoping for it too, saying that this is why he put them in charge of the gate, so that they would fight amongst themselves and then kill whoever's left. It's the old divide and conquer routine. Miguel approaches, saying that a couple of the hostages are in bad shape, and that he and Said have said to get a doctor, and asks how they want to vote. Unsurprisingly, Adabazi and Scott vote no, so it's down to Ryan to decide. He asks Miguel what his vote is worth to him, but Miguel isn't willing to give him anything. So Ryan sides with the others, leading it three to two against. We cut back to the hostages, where Officer Dagnasty is telling a bunch of jokes to ease the tension.
3: My uncle was a drunk. I tried to get him some new hobbies to keep him from drinking. Got him into sculpting school. Didn't help. Kept coming home plastered.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ.
3: Another uncle who was a rare coin dealer. One day, a couple of tough guys come into the place and uh, beat him senseless. Stop. Got another uncle, owned a grocery store. One night, somebody comes in and caves his head in with a case of cornflakes. flakes. The cops think it might have been the work of a serial killer.
1: killer. Ignacio, shut the fuck up. Just trying to break the tension.
0: Boo! These jokes are fucking horrendous. It's still better than the guy in The Happening who tried to calm someone down with a mass riddle, though. Miguel returns and tells him that it's no to a doctor, but as Miguel has been working as an orderly in the hospital, he does have a little bit of knowledge of some basic first aid and starts to attend to Armstrong. We cut to Leo's office, where he, McManus and Devlin are meeting. Devlin is looking to take action straight away, whereas McManus wants to wait for the list of demands, as Leo sits with his head in his hand wishing he was anywhere else. Devlin's plan is to cut off the water and electricity, and then later in the night, fire in tear gas. McManus asks what about the hostages? Devlin says that hopefully the sort team will reach them. Devlin makes the same mistake as Leo by referring to them as the sort team, rather than just the sort. McManus says that they don't even know where the hostages are before Devlin fires back, that they don't even know how many hostages they have, and that the longer that they wait, the more chance they're giving the inmates to dig in. He says that even though they've sealed off the other cell blocks, the inmates know what's going on, and that they're sitting on a time bomb, meaning that the situation could get worse before it gets better, i.e. meaning that other inmates could uprise as well. He also declares that he's going public and sending in the National Guard to surround the prison. The National Guard is something I've heard of, but never actually known what they are. It's made up of reserves from the other US armed forces and has 54 separate organisations, one for each state, as well as the US-controlled territories of Guam, the Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and the District of Columbia. and each unit is controlled by the state and federal government. The phone rings, and the rioters want some food. Devlin doesn't want to play ball, but Leo says that he doesn't see any harm in sending in some sandwiches. Hopefully he sends in some nice ones. Mine's a chicken and bacon with mayonnaise on brown, please, Leo. McManus volunteers to take the food into M-City on condition that they get to see the hostages. Devlin asks if he's volunteering and says that he's even stupider than he thought. We cut back to M-City and McManus has his cart of sandwiches and big bucket of juice with him and yells to be let in. Scott, Ryan and Adebisi come to the gate and tell him to leave the food there. But McManus demands to see the hostages as that was the deal. Ryan says okay, but that McManus comes in alone. So McManus is eventually allowed into M City and proclaims that dinner is served and Scott says, yeah, help yourself, boys. Adam takes exception to being called Boy, which we've discussed before on the podcast, and Ryan has to once again separate everybody and says that they'll serve the same way that they do in the cafeteria, and McManus has to be taken to see the hostages. The inmates line up to receive their sandwich, and typically Kenny tries to get away with more than his fair share, as we see McManus looking up to the control desk, seeing Saeed looking down from his position of power. They don't break eye contact as McManus is led through M-City. McManus is showing incredible courage here, he's all on his own with the entire population of M-City. He's holding his nerve, but he's definitely a Christian that's been thrown to the lions at this point. He's taken to the hostages and asks how they're doing, with Ray saying that Menio and Armstrong could do with going to the hospital. Hunt says that they're doing okay, all things considering, and McManus asks Diane if she's okay. Scott says, no one touched her if that's what you mean. And even in this situation, McManus is getting in his face asking, was I talking to you? but Scott reminds him that he isn't in charge anymore as McManus just brushes him aside asking Ray if there's any more hostages. He turns to Miguel and asks what it's going to take to get Menia, Armstrong and Diane set free. Miguel says that they need to put it to a vote. And with that, we see McManus taken into a pod to pitch to the other leaders, saying that if they let those three go, then he'll stay. Adebisi tells him that it's not an even trade, so at least he's got basic math skills but McManus says that if Meno and Armstrong die, then they will be held responsible and probably get the death sentence. Ryan interjects and proposes that they let Meno and Armstrong go, but Diane stays, to which McManus says no deal. Scott says that he isn't understanding his current situation, and that they don't have to let anyone go, including McManus, who asks if they're going to go back on their word or not. Saeed says that the group intend on fulfilling their end of the bargain, which upsets Scott, but Saeed tells him that if they lie to them, then they become just like them, and that they won't get their list of demands. The group vote on Ryan's proposal for the two guards from McManus. We cut to see them being passed to the sort to be taken away for treatment, as the gate is closed, and Ryan hands over a letter for Leo from McManus explaining the trade, and he also passes over the list of demands. Back in Leo's office, he is reading the list of demands, including being able to speak to the media uncensored, no repercussions to anybody involved in the riot, and the return of conjugal visits, and the smoking ban to be overturned. Regarding talking to the press, Devlin says, sure, we'll put them on right after Seinfeld. References to Seinfeld were very much the style at the time in the late 90s on television. It was the second most watched show in America at the time, and was due to come back for its final season a month after this episode was broadcast. There's a very funny Saturday Night Live skit of Jerry Seinfeld being sent to Oz. I think it came a few years after this, maybe around the fifth season but if you Google Jerry Seinfeld Oz, you'll find it. I think the video's on Daily Motion. A relative of Jerry Seinfeld will also join the cast in Season 2, but that's for another day. Leo thinks that the demands are actually quite reasonable, but Devlin says that he rejects them all and he won't negotiate with animals. Looking like he's had enough, Leo asks him what he wants to do to end the situation, Devlin telling him to do it by force. We go back to the hostages, as Hunt tells McManus that this is all his fault. The others tell him to pack it in, but Hunt says that if he's going to die, he wants the bastard who got him whacked to know it. Hunt continues to give out to McManus, who is looking out of a pod at Beecher, who is staring right back at him. As he looks at Beecher, McManus has a vision of the six men that have died in Oz over the course of the series, and they're all standing around Beecher. So we get a nice bunch of cameos from Sanchez, Ortolani, Post, Keene, Markstrom and Groves. Those six men disappear as Beecher walks away and McManus starts to say, oh fuck, oh Christ, seemingly not prepared to allow another death, that of Beecher, to occur. He gets to his feet, kicks at the pod glass and pleads to see Saeed. Miguel even tells him that he likes it when McManus begs. Cuts to McManus and Saeed talking alone in one of the pods and McManus is talking about growing up nearby.
3: Saeed, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York. There was only one major industry there. The prison. Everybody's parents either worked at the prison or made a living from, you know, motels, gas stations, or, like my dad, had a diner right across the street. It was a fall. We'd just come back to school. Uh, I was about to turn 10, so I was very, very excited. Uh, a few days before my birthday, though, there was this riot. And it lasted four days. But then the governor authorized 2,500 troops, state troopers, to go back in, take it back. They did. Firing at anything that moved. So when the tear gas cleared, 31 inmates and nine hostages were dead. three of my friends' fathers were shot. Instead of going to a birthday party, I went with my family to a uh, memorial service.
2: So that's what this is all about? Emerald City is your birthday party.
3: Look. I built M-City because I want to make a better world for you. For all of you. Right now we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster. And before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance. Not mine to give.
0: Yes, it is! No, it's not! Because even the best
3: prison wouldn't be good enough.
0: So the Attica prison has been mentioned a few times over the course of the series, and I mentioned way back at the start of the podcast about the possibility of the name Oz being in reference to the warden at the time of the prison's riot in 1971. McManus makes reference that 31 inmates and 9 hostages were killed, although there are conflicting reports as to any actual number. Some say 29 inmates were killed, while others say 33 inmates and 10 hostages, but it does seem to be in and around the right number that McManus gives here. It also goes some distance to explain about McManus's family backstory and how he ended up working in the prison industry. I did find an interesting article about the Attica riot from 2016 that was featured in the New York Post, which I'll link in the description of this episode. Said says that he's going to try one more time with Mamanus, and states that his reason for inciting the riot are not to do with the demands that were made, but that he is looking for better justice through actual reform in the justice system, and how it relates to race issues, such as a lack of education and poor economic background. McManus says that if they don't resolve the riots soon, people will die, and he flat out tells Saeed that he could be one of them. But Saeed says that he is willing to lay down his life for change. Another good callback to when he told Jefferson Keane that he was willing to give his life for him when they first met. He does concede that the aftermath of the Attica riot did bring about reforms at the time, but also states that everybody seems to have forgotten about the lessons of McManus's little town, and that it's time to wake the country up again. Terry Kinney in this scene is fantastic, and I'd probably say this is his best bit of acting in the series so far. Ryan comes running up to the pod and tells Saeed that they need to talk, but Saeed parts ways with McManus, saying that he wants to destroy M-City rather than save it, and is going to do it brick by hypocritical brick. Ryan and Saeed make their way through M-City, as Ryan tells him that there is tension at the gate, and that he's breaking up fights every ten minutes between the Brotherhood and the Homeboys. Saeed says to put the Brotherhood in another cell block, but Ryan thinks that in order for that to happen, they're going to want something in exchange. Saeed tells him to switch the Brotherhood with the Latinos to look after the hostages, which he agrees to, but Ryan then tells him that they're out of heroin. Saeed says that that is a good thing, but Ryan says that Adbezi and his pals are starting to fiend for more, and that things are going to turn very ugly very quickly. Saeed says that when and if that happens, he will be ready. Ryan asks him what he's going to do, but Saeed walks away saying nothing. Ryan goes to grab him by the arm, but the Muslims push Ryan away. Beecher grabs one of the Muslims from behind, holding his broomstick to the man's neck, but Ryan tells him to back off, which he does, but with a sinister smile. Zayid tells everyone to go back to their business before heading back up to the control desk. So, we're beginning to see the cracks really start to form now. The riot has only been going a number of hours, yet all sides seem to be starting to look out for themselves, rather than remain a united front. The Latinos switch with the Brotherhood at the gate as we pan up to McManus's office, where Kenny and Adebisi are looking for more drugs. Adebisi tells the gang to follow him, and they head down the stairs. He tells his crew to raid every pod and see what they can find, and as they go, a number of fights break out with other inmates. The Muslims head down to calm things, and one of them strikes an awesome fight pose like he's from a Mortal Kombat game. Adebisi starts to fight with whoever is closest to him and just starts screaming, WHERE ARE THE TITS? And he even grabs Kenny and starts to swing him around. Saeed makes his way down and shouts Adebisi's name before pointing the gun at him. As Adabeezy starts to choke Kenny, Saeed tells him, it's finished, it's over, before Adabeezy finally releases Kenny. We then get to see Adebisi's crime flashback, in which we see him chasing a man down some train tracks wielding a machete. The man falls to the ground before holding out a badge showing that he is a police officer. Adabeezy spits and then runs the machete across his chin, proclaiming that it's Execution Day Baby, and swipes at the police officer. Augustus lists Adebisi's number as Adebisi stands holding the severed head of the man, and he is charged with murder in the first degree, sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So Simon Adebisi is played by Adewale Akanoe Agbaje. I'm fairly certain that I've pronounced that name correctly this time, certainly better than I did the first time at the start of the podcast. Adewale was born August 22, 1967, in Islington, England, by parents of Nigerian heritage, but was given up by his parents at six weeks old, a common practice among Nigerian families at the time, and given to a white working-class family in Tilbury, England. At various points, his foster family had upwards of ten African children, including Adewale's two sisters, living in their house. At age 8, Adewale's biological parents brought him back to Nigeria. After falling in with a bad crowd, as well as being unable to speak the Yoruba language of the district, and his father forbidding him to speak English, he returned to Tilbury shortly afterwards. His brief stay in Nigeria left Adewale with somewhat of an identity crisis, struggling to balance his Nigerian heritage with the English culture that he was raised in. As a young man, he joined a skinhead gang at the age of 16, but was later sent by his foster parents to boarding school in Surrey, where he managed to turn his life around. He later attended King's College London, where he earned a law degree before attending the University of London, where he achieved a masters in law. Upon completion of his masters, Adewali moved to Milan, Italy, where he worked as a fashion model, a career which gained him work in music videos such as Jealousy by the Pet Shop Boys, Give Him Something He Can Feel by En Vogue, Love No Limit by Mary J. Blige, and You Don't Love Me by Don Penn. Ultimately, this led Adewale to Hollywood, where he appeared briefly on TV in Red Shoe Diaries and New York Undercover, before making his feature film debut in 1995's Congo, Ace Ventura When Nature Calls in the same year, as well as a number of other small roles before landing the role of Simon Adebisi. Interestingly, Adewale originally auditioned for the role of Augustus, and I think it's on the Season 3 DVD extras. They include both his and Harold's audition tapes. And it's really interesting to hear what Augustus could have sounded like had Adewale been cast in the role.
1: Hi, I'm Harold Perriner. My name is Adewale. You know, um, people kill people just to stay alive. That's as true in here as it is out there. But what I'm wondering is, In here, why you fight so hard to stay alive? But what I'm wondering is, why in here we fight so hard to stay alive? You now, a man gets sentenced to 100 years in prison. He really thinks if he exercises, if he uh, defends himself, he's really going to walk out of it? I mean, a man gets 100 years. He really thinks if he exercises and defends himself, he's going to walk out? The judge says life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Without the possibility. Without the possibility. <laughs> life is bad. Meant- at some point they realise they ain't going nowhere. I mean, I've seen it happen. They get this kind of cold look in their eyes. You know, sorting out of something the rest of us can't even guess at.
0: Lucky for us, the casting worked out great, as I couldn't picture anybody else playing Adebisi. I made reference before about how the part was changed to reflect Adewale's Nigerian heritage more and it's said that certain characteristics are based on members of the Nigerian gang that he was part of when he was younger. The hat he wears is supposedly based on the gang members too, and the more crooked to the side the hat is, like how Adebisi wears it, the better the status the gang member had. I'm also willing to bet that Adewale pitched for this to be Adebisi's crime. It would not surprise me to find out that he knew someone, or heard about someone that had actually committed this exact crime back in Nigeria. We come back and Adebizi tells Saeed to go ahead and kill him, but Saeed lowers the gun saying that he doesn't want to. Adabizi says, I know, you want to save my ass." before asking Saeed to get him some drugs, and falling to his knees, continuing to ask for them. Cut to Adebizi and the rest of his gang handcuffed, clearly they can't be trusted while they're in this condition, and it's at this point that the power is cut and the lights go out. Saeed proclaims that this is the beginning of the end and that the staff are about to make their move, and asks for the hostages to be brought out. Adebisi asks Beecher to untie him, but Beecher says that he shouldn't have stolen his watch and gives him a little slap in the face. The hostages are brought out and told to stand in a straight line, so that when the sort come in, they'll be the first to get hit. They take their mouths shut, but not before Scott asks McManus if he asks any last words, with McManus telling him to suck his dick, but Scott laments that there isn't any time. The inmates run to the back of M-City as tear gas is fired in and engulfs the prison. Everyone drops to the ground as Augustus tries to get into a pod, but somebody is holding it closed. Ryan takes the Rebido approach and hides behind a mattress, as Beecher stands at the glass screaming, Yeah, motherfuckers, like an 80s rock star, and we see Schillinger cowering in his pod. Rebido looks up to God one last time as shots ring out and windows smash. We see an inmate take a gunshot to the head as the barricade at the gate is driven through by a forklift and the sort make their way in good job no one was stood in front of the barricade they wouldn't have stood a chance of surviving being run over by a forklift more gunshots are fired as Augustus narrates about Dorothy returning home in the Wizard of Oz to close out the episode and end the first series
1: yeah who cares who lives or dies in prison we read the names in the morning paper and they mean nothing to us they're faceless the truth is we don't want to put a face on them. We don't want to know who they really are. Because then it might hit too close to home. And home is what it's all about, right? Making a home no matter where you are. No matter who you are. At the end of the day, everybody wants somewhere to rest. Somewhere to lay their bones. Even if it's in a land called ours. Yeah. Like Dorothy says when she wakes up in her own bed back at Aunt Anne's. It's no place like home. There's no fucking place like home.
0: <laughs> so there you have it, episode 8, A Game of Checkers, and the first series of Oz has come to a close. It's been one hell of a ride so far, from Beecher coming in and his descent into madness, Ryan O'Reilly seemingly playing as many people as he can against one another, Schillinger being a nasty bastard before getting exactly what he deserved, and Saeed claiming to be a man of peace, all the while plotting to cause as much destruction as he can. Having looked back at the series as a whole, it shouldn't really have been much of a surprise to see the riot happen. I know I started to number the amount of mansions earlier on, but it got to the point where it was easier for me to just put a sound effect in every time it was mentioned. And having looked back at it, it was mentioned much more often than I remembered when watching the first series the first time round. On top of all of that, we've also said goodbye to a number of folks along the way, partly down to the inmates getting a bit murdery, but largely down to the death penalty being reinstated. So, the roll call of the dead for Series 1 stands at a total of 11, meaning that we are averaging 1.38 deaths per episode. Those that have died this series include... Number 1, Emilio Sanchez, murdered by Dino Ortolani by suffocation. Number 2, Dino Ortolani, murdered by Johnny Post by being burned alive as retaliation for beating Billy Keene, brother of Jefferson Keene. Number 3, Johnny Post, tortured and executed by the Wise Guys gang on orders from Nino Shabetta to avenge the death of Dino Ortolani. Number 4, Angie Shabetta died of natural causes. Number 5, Martinez, a member of the Latino gang killed by Jefferson Keene in the gym during an attack orchestrated by Nino Shabeta and Ryan O'Reilly. Number 6, Jefferson Keane, executed by lethal injection following the restoration of the death penalty, convicted for murdering Martinez. Number seven, Richard Lytalian, convicted of murder, then confessing to 38 other murders whilst on death row, executed by lethal injection. Number eight, Paul Markstrom, murdered by being hanged in the gym after being discovered to be an undercover narcotics cop. Number nine, Husseini Mashah. committed suicide in his cell after being cast out of the Muslim group following a power struggle with leader Kareem Saeed. Number ten, Donald Groves convicted of the murder of Officer Lauren Smith, executed by Firing Squad. Number 11, unidentified inmate, shot in the head by the sort whilst defusing a riot that had broken out in the prison. That is the list of deaths that we know about. As we go into season two and we get the aftermath of the riot, I'm fully expecting other deaths to be confirmed, and we'll cover those when we get to them. My episode MVP for this one, and this isn't through anything that he's necessarily done through his character, but I'm going to give it to Vern Schillinger, or more specifically to J.K. Simmons. Like I said, it's not through anything that he actually did as the character, it's just the fact that every scene that J.K. Simmons was in, he was fantastic in them. As for my MVP of the series, I am going to give that to Sister Pete. She has provided some much-needed comic relief and is probably the only person on the prison staff that the inmates actually seem to have some respect for. And as I mentioned with the comic relief, when you've got a show that's intense as Oz, I think the comic relief is something that is much needed. So for that reason, that's why I'm giving her the series MVP. So, how did Oz Series 1 perform overall? According to Metacritic, the first series rated a 70 overall, meaning generally favourable reviews, and its IMDb rating averages out at an 8.6 overall for the series. The first series also won a handful of awards. Rita Moreno won two awards for her role as Sister Pete, in which she won an American Latino Media Arts Award for Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series, and a Cable ACE Award for Actress in a Dramatic Series. The Cable ACE Awards also saw Oz win a further two awards, one for Eamon Walker for Actor in a Dramatic Series, as well as the Dramatic Series Award itself. Kirk Acevedo and Terry Kinney were also nominated for their roles as Miguel Alvarez and Tim McManus, respectively, in the Actor in a Dramatic Series category. Series 1's awards total was boosted to six overall when the show's casting director, Alexa L. Fogel, won two awards at the Casting Society of America Awards. So that is everything for Series 1 of Inside Oz. As always, you can get in touch with the show by emailing any questions or comments to InsideOzPodcast at gmail.com or by following the show on Instagram and Twitter using the handle at InsideOzPodcast. If you have missed any of the previous episodes of the show, you can go back and catch up on iTunes, on Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast and all other major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a like and a five-star review wherever you can to help the show get noticed. Before we head back to Oz to find out the aftermath of the riot in Series 2, I have something special in mind, but you'll have to wait and see what that is. It's something that I've had planned for a little while, and I think it's going to be quite fun to do in something that I'm calling Episode 8.5. I'll leave some clues on the social media pages for you all, but until then, I've been Neil Thompson, I'm going to go watch American Psycho. Catch you all again soon, folks.